Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research here at Cato. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you this morning to our conference on the future of U.S. economic growth. I think we've assembled a, a truly uh, superb uh, lineup of speakers uh, and fascinating presentations, and uh, I am uh, delighted you could all join us uh, for today's event. Uh, before going any further, let me thank uh, the Searle Freedom Trust, the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, and the Carthage Foundation for their generous support, not only of today's conference, but of the associated uh, online forum on reviving growth. Uh, in today's conference and that online forum, we've assembled some of the most brilliant economists and policy experts in the country to wrestle with two very big, very important, and very complicated questions. Number one, what's wrong with the US economy? And number two, what can we do to make things better? As to the first question, we begin with the jury performance of the US economy since the Great Recession. Normally, steep recessions are followed by equally robust recoveries, but in the present case, uh, growth uh, in both output and employment uh, has been unusually sluggish. No doubt some of this has been due to cyclical or uh, short-term factors. Some argue that financial crisis recessions are different somehow and cause a, an especially nasty hangover. Uh, some argue that fiscal policy stimulus has been inadequate. Some contend that the tepid pace of NGDP growth shows that monetary policy has been too restrictive. Some point to the paralyzing effects of policy and regulatory uncertainty. And some say that the effects of countercyclical measures, in particular the extension of unemployment insurance, has been perverse. I like some of these explanations better than others, and I doubtless you feel the same way. Uh, but lurking beneath all of these short-term explanations are data that point to longer-term structural explanations for slowing growth. In other words, data that suggest that slow growth is the new normal. <clears throat> Let me mention three reasons for believing that a longer-term growth slowdown is underway. One, a shift from rising hours worked per capita to stagnant or falling hours. Two, a plateauing of worker skill levels. And three, a resumption of low total factor productivity growth after a decade of rapid growth. There's been a lot of focus on the fall of the labor force participation rate since 2000, and especially <clears throat> since 2007. Uh, but the more comprehensive measure of labor force mobilization for market work is hours worked per capita, which includes not only participation rates, but hours worked per participant. Uh, this statistic isn't widely discussed. You don't see graphical representations of it very often, uh, but you can uh, in a paper I did last year called Why Growth is Getting Harder. You can look at figure two and see something that I think is really important, namely that from the late 1960s till 2000, hours worked uh, were climbing. Uh, they fell for most of the 20th century because of uh, shorter hour uh, work weeks and rising education levels. Uh, but from uh, the late 60s till 2000, uh, they were rising, uh, but <clears throat> since then have been falling or stagnant. The shift, very important I think, uh, predates the Great Recession. When we think about uh, growth, output per capita is usually our prime concern, and that can be expressed as the product of two components. One, hours work per capita, and two, output per hour. So if the growth rate for hours worked has fallen or even become negative, it follows that growth in output per hour will have to rise in compensating fashion uh, or else growth in output per capita will fall. So how do things look on the productivity front? Output per hour uh, can rise for three basic reasons. Uh, more skills per worker, more capital per worker, or more innovation or what economists call total factor productivity. Growth in all three elements uh, looks sluggish today and the sluggishness predates the Great Recession. 
Back in the 1970s, the original uh, slump in productivity growth was offset uh, by uh, then uh, <clears throat> strong growth in uh, labor force participation and rising hours worked per capita. In the late 1990s, we had the best of both worlds with rising hours and a productivity boom. But in the past decade, hours have been falling and productivity growth has subsided to its slower pre-1995 rate. Meanwhile, uh, worker skills, another important component of labor productivity, uh, have, uh, are due to plateau in the coming decade. That is, uh, new cohorts of workers are going to have the same educational levels as the ones they replace. Uh, this is something new uh, in American economic history. So all growth components <clears throat> are soft at the same time. So the numbers don't look very good. Uh, but are there other even deeper reasons for pessimism? Uh, one possibility, which we will examine in the second panel today, is that we are quite simply running out of good ideas, running out of transformational innovations that can dramatically better the human condition. Uh, the lowest hanging fruit uh, of modern economic growth has already been picked, according to this uh, contention. Uh, yet another possibility that we will address in the third panel uh, is that the main culprit is a slowdown in the pace and intensity of US economic dynamism. That is, the churn of jobs and firms that Schumpeter called creative destruction. We turn now to the second big question of the day, what is to be done? Uh, if we find the current pace and distribution of economic growth to be unsatisfactory, and public opinion polls about right track, wrong track indicate that dissatisfaction is widespread indeed, what do we do about it? Talk about a complicated problem. Public policy influences both the level and rate of economic output on hundreds or thousands of different margins. Meanwhile, given that policy change is difficult and time-consuming, it's inevitable that we can only try a limited number of reforms. So of all the countless levers we could be pulling, which offer the biggest bang for the buck? In organizing this conference, I was completely stumped uh, about how to squeeze consideration of all the possible options into a couple of afternoon panels. So I did the libertarian thing and gave up on central planning. Uh, I, <clears throat> I decided instead I would simply assemble a couple of panels of very smart people and ask them all the same question. Namely, if you had a magic wand uh, and could change one policy, one or two policies to improve uh, long-term US growth prospects, uh, what would you change and why? I then thought, well, that's such a fun question to ask people. I want to ask a lot more people than I can fit on a couple of panels. So in conjunction with the conference, I organized the online forum on reviving growth that has been rolling out on the Cato website over the past few weeks. I went to 51 top economists and policy experts, including the panelists, uh, <coughs> in uh, the afternoon panels, uh, and asked them all this same question. Uh, those essays uh, are all now on the Cato website. We will eventually uh, compile them uh, and release them as an ebook. Uh, we will also release a separate ebook, I believe, uh, of the morning conference papers that are diagnosing problems in the US economy. Uh, the forum is by no means a, a representative sample of expert opinion, but it's a pretty eclectic group with a fair amount of ideological diversity. Of course, there are lots of different and conflicting bits of advice, but what's really interesting to me uh, are policy ideas that crop up again and again across the ideological spectrum. It makes me think back to the 1970s, another period uh, when U.S. economic performance was flagging, and strange left-right coalitions emerged uh, that led to major policy reforms in dismantling price and entry controls in energy, transportation, finance, and telecom. Now we tend to associate deregulation with the political right, but back then Ralph Nader and Ted Kennedy, along with his young aide Stephen Breyer, uh, were at the forefront of airline and trucking deregulation. It's my hope that our current predicament can give rise to equally curious and equally fertile uh, left-right coalitions to tackle the challenges of today. 
And in particular, I hope that today's conference can help lay the intellectual groundwork for such a development. Okay, with those lofty ambitions put on the table, let's sit back and enjoy the show and start with our first panel. Jeff, thank you. Good morning. Thank you very much for coming. It's a great crowd. My name is Jeffrey Myron. I'm the Director of Economic Studies here at Cato. I'm also a senior fellow, excuse me, a senior lecturer in economics at Harvard University in Cambridge. Uh, for those of you who think that might make your head explode to do the, both of those two things, I can assure you there's a lot more libertarian tolerance and even libertarian leaning on the Harvard faculty than uh, the Wall Street Journal gives it credit for. Uh, nevertheless, there's some tension, but that tension is fun. Um, this first panel that uh, we're hearing today is forecasting long-term growth outlook. So we're just trying to assess what experts in the field think is likely to happen uh, in the medium and long term with respect to the U.S. economy's growth. Uh, we have three panelists. I'm going to give a brief introduction of each of them. They will each have 20 minutes, followed by question and answer. Um, and so I will introduce all of them first and then turn it over so we can get into the substance. Uh, the first speaker will be Dale Jorgensen. He's the Samuel Morris University professor in the economics department at Harvard University, my colleague. He's a renowned expert in the economics of investment spending and the measurement of economic productivity. John Fernald is currently the Senior Research Advisor and Vice President for Macroeconomic Research at the Federal Reserve Board of San Francisco. He's worked in several areas, especially the interactions between fluctuations, growth, and the measurement of those two things, uh, very, very non-trivial activities of actually figuring out what is growth and what is fluctuations. Martin Bailey is a senior fellow and director of the Business and Public Policy Initiative at the Brookings Institution. He is widely known for his work on competitive, competitiveness, globalization, and productivity, and more recently, also work on recent financial crises. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dale Jorgensen, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you. Well, thank you, Brink, and uh, thank you, Jeff, for setting the stage. Uh, this part of the um, day's proceeding has to do with the question of uh, what has happened to the performance of the U.S. economy. Uh, actually, we know a good deal about that, and my goal is going to be to try to quantify for you uh, the lessons from post-war history. Uh, this is uh, something that is now possible because of an initiative at our Bureau of Economic Analysis. The Bureau of Economic Analysis, as you know, is responsible for our national accounts. And beginning about five years ago, the uh, Bureau began to incorporate economic growth into the national accounts. Uh, this was a revolutionary development that uh, wasn't much noticed in the financial press. Uh, because of, of course, the uh, preoccupation with the uh, crisis. But at any rate, uh, BA has established both uh, aggregate and industry-level uh, growth accounts within the framework of the U.S. Uh, national accounts. And uh, what I'm going to try to do is to uh, take advantage of this important advance in the economic tools that we can use to try to answer this question, what happened to economic growth? So my goal is to present an intermediate-term outlook, by which I mean an outlook for the next uh, decade or so. I'm going to focus on 2012 to 2022, uh, but uh, that's something that simply reflects the availability of the uh, data. Uh, to begin with, 
We want to take advantage of the fact that BA has created for us a very detailed quantitative record for 65 industries within the U.S. economy. And to simplify uh, the discussion, I'm going to break these down into three categories. First of all, there are the IT producing industries, information technology producing industries. Uh, by that I mean software and hardware, but also uh, information technology services that add value to the uh, product and uh, make possible uh, the kind of innovations that we're familiar with, the uh, internet economy, if you like. Why focus on information technology? Well, the reason is basically that since uh, uh, 1973, the IT producing sectors, hardware and software and services, uh, have been responsible for uh, most of the innovation that takes place uh, in the U.S. economy. By most of the innovation, I mean uh, essentially most of the increase in output per unit of input, in economic jargon, total factor productivity. So uh, that's a, a very important uh, uh, reason to focus on this narrow range of industries. Uh, I'll also talk about the IT using industries where the information technology is uh, deployed. Uh, then finally, we're going to use the rest of the economy uh, as a backdrop, that's the uh, non-IT sector, and uh, that's going to be our uh, framework. Uh, I'm going to focus most of my attention on uh, productivity trends, but I want to also focus a good bit of attention on uh, what uh, Brink raised at the outset, which is the long-term underlying changes in demography. Turns out that demography is a uh, very, very important driver of economic growth that is, by and large, uh, part of the background of our framework for understanding uh, developments. However, it does turn out that there are very, very important changes, which uh, Brink outlined. And I'm going to try to quantify that and look at the implications for uh, the um, future growth of the uh, US economy. Well, so we're going to focus on two issues. We're going to focus on technology emphasizing information technology, what changes have uh, taken place there. And secondly, we're going to uh, focus on demography and uh, these changes in demographic trends, which I think are epic making, uh, are already present in our historical data and uh, are playing a very important role uh, in the outlook for the U.S. economy going forward already. So this is the uh, picture of uh, productivity, the way that it's uh, developed in the post-war period. So I've divide, uh, separated the period from 1947 to 2012, which is the end of our historical uh, data set, into uh, three sub-periods. 47 to 73 is the post-war recovery. Uh, 73 to uh, 95 is what uh, has been characterized as the long slump, a period of relatively low productivity growth. And then, of course, 95 to the present, which is a period of relatively rapid growth and also the Great Recession. The color scheme here is something that uh, uh, illuminates this uh, uh, picture. Uh, the dark yellow, let's call it gold, uh, is the contribution of information technology to productivity growth. So you can see during the post-war recovery from 47 to 73, that was essentially nil. It wasn't part of the information age. 
The information age really began in the 1970s, and while we were in a period of relatively low productivity growth from 73 to 95, the information technology producing sectors, again the dark yellow, took over innovation, the growth of productivity, output per unit of input, and the role of the IT using sectors in green, making up about half of the economy, uh, still hadn't uh, emerged from the uh, slump, and the contribution of the non-IT industries was in fact negative during that period. So there was a huge drop from the post-war recovery where the uh, non-IT sectors in light yellow had been predominant to the uh, big slump where uh, they shifted into reverse gear. During 95 to 2012, information technology continued to predominate. In fact, uh, it increased its role. The IT producing sectors revived and productivity growth in the non-IT sectors, again, most of the economy, including almost all of the goods producing sectors, essentially disappeared. Now, if we look at the post-war period in uh, microcosm, we can focus on the period of the uh, boom, beginning in 95, ending with the dot-com crash around 2000, and the Great Recession, which of course characterized the period from 2007 to 2009. So 95 to 2012 is a chart that I showed you before, and if we look at the boom, of course, that was a record-breaking productivity growth that was dominated by the IT-producing industries in dark yellow and the IT-using industries in green. The non-IT sector did have a brief revival, but almost uh, hardly noticeable. And then from 2000 to 2007, after the dot-com crash but before the crisis, the IT uh, industries declined uh, in uh, quantitative terms, but in relative uh, terms uh, continued to be very important. IT using industries in green uh, also uh, declined, and non-IT uh, went into reverse. And then finally, we get the period of the crisis, the Great Recession, 2007 to 2012, where the only source of innovation has been the IT producing industries. Some people think that this is a period during which technical dynamism in the IT producing industries disappeared, but as you can see, that's very far from uh, the case. Well, now how are we going to make use of this? One thing to do is to ask ourselves, what are the trends that characterize this dynamic 3% of our economy, the IT producers, and what has happened to those trends? Computer scientists, and we'll soon hear from uh, somebody who is a real computer scientist, uh, tend to emphasize the very important driving role of uh, semiconductor technology, which is described here. And it's the growth of processor performance since the mid-1980s. What you can see is that there are three eras in processor performance, uh, in technical terms, semiconductor performance. There's a period at the uh, very beginning uh, here when uh, there was uh, growth at a uh, modest rate of around 25% uh, per year. Innovation at 25% a year uh, is something that uh, characterizes only the IT producers. Then there was an acceleration to almost 50% per year that continued up until around 2004. 
just at the end of the period after the dot-com crash. And there, rather than disappearing, productivity growth or processor performance in semiconductors went back essentially to its preceding trend of about 20% a year. So we had a very pronounced uh, acceleration that uh, began in the mid-1980s, but uh, exhausted itself uh, by the uh, first decade of this century, and uh, we're now back to uh, something more approximating normal. This has a great deal of explanatory power in understanding the role of information technology industries. It hasn't disappeared, but it's certainly slowed down. So that's an important part of the story. So in projecting productivity and economic growth, which is the purpose of our panel here, I'm going to focus on uh, labor productivity and then on the growth of hours worked and then on uh, potential output projections. So when I mean potential output, I mean not taking into account uh, differences in rates of utilization that uh, play such an important role in the business cycle. Well, here's our picture then of the uh, base case, pessimistic case, and optimistic case projections. The base case essentially projects uh, post-war history. What it says is that there was a sea change in 1973 that led to a permanent uh, upward trend, but that is not going to continue at the very high pace of the period from 95 to 2000 uh, that was essentially associated with this development in semiconductor performance that I alluded to earlier. So the base case says that uh, we're going to have something more uh, approximating business as usual in the development of uh, productivity in the information technology industries, about 0.3% per year uh, for the aggregate economy. About 0.2% of the productivity in the base case is associated with the high performance of the IT users. Uh, again, about half of the economy that uh, performs not at the uh, blazing pace of information technology producing industries, but rather uh, the users, the uh, people in services and trade especially uh, who make use of information technology. The optimistic case puts greater weight on the boom says that that's somehow going to come back, despite what we know about the performance of technology. And the pessimistic case says, well, that was an illusion anyway. And so we're going to focus just uh, excluding the boom on the period before and afterward. OK, now what I'm going to do is to incorporate this in a very simple model of the economy. And I'm going to be focusing on labor productivity projections from 2012 to 2022. So let's begin with the base case. What we see is that I'm going to assume that the base case productivity in all three sectors of the economy is going to average pretty much what it was from 1990, before the great boom of the late 90s, all the way through to the end of the period, including the Great Recession. So that's our productivity assumption, and uh, that's what you see in the base case. Then. The second main driver, technology and demography, the second main driver is going to be demography. And the second thing that we need to project on the basis of our knowledge about the labor force and how it's going to develop is labor quality, defined as labor input weighted by human capital per hour worked. 
You can see that that was a very important driver from 1990 to 2012. That's in red here. About half a percent per year of the productivity growth rate in the US economy, which is around 1.7, was due to favorable demography, improvements in labor quality. That is going to disappear. And in fact, the growth in labor quality, think of that as embodied human capital, is going to drop to about a tenth of a percent. Now, how can that happen? And why didn't we know about it? Why isn't this the focus of every article about economic growth? People were not watching demography. They were focusing on the recession. They were focusing on technology. But demography is a very important part of the story. And the demographic trend owes something to the fact that for the past four decades, the average level of educational attainment of people leaving the educational system has been essentially unchanged the last four decades, going all the way back to 1973. The last people with lower educational attainment are now retiring from the labor force. These are the people that we refer to as the baby boomers. The baby boom generation will be gone within the next couple years. And that will lead to essentially an unchanged, very high level of educational attainment. That demographic trend has been almost unnoticed. And now we can quantify it using information about the future growth of the labor force. Well, then we need to look at the implications of these trends in technology and trends in demography for the uh, uh, capital deepening, capital per unit of uh, uh, labor or hours worked. And uh, what we see is that in the base case, that's a little larger because of the increase in productivity. In the pessimistic case, a little lower. Productivity is lower. Demography is, of course, the same. And then in the optimistic case, a little higher. Well, that gives us our productivity. And now, all we need to do to get an economic uh, projection that we can discuss is the picture of what's going to happen to hours worked. That's something about which there's a good deal of uncertainty. But we do know that the demographic trends are unfavorable. We have a, uh, a, an aging population. And the growth of hours worked in trend is going to drop from about 0.6% for the period 1990 to 2012 to about 0.5%. So the labor quality story is the big story in demography, but there's also a slowdown associated with a decline in the size of the labor force relative to the population. If we combine that with our labor productivity projections that I just showed you in dark purple, what we find is that the outlook for future economic growth in this country in the base case is one and three quarters percent per year. So compare that with 1990 to 2012. That was before, includes the period before the boom. It includes the Great Recession and everything in between. That was a period during which average growth was about 2.4%. We have lost potential output growth of almost seven tenths of a percent. All of that is due, basically, to these adverse trends in demography, which need to be analyzed, of course, in much more detail. The optimistic case says, well, productivity could be uh, better. We could revert 
uh, if we had uh, the same kind of technical dynamism we did during the boom to uh, productivity growth rates that prevailed then. The pessimistic case says that is transitory, maybe even a statistical illusion, and uh, that's the end of the picture. Well, just to summarize, projecting productivity and economic growth is not rocket science. It requires making effective use of the data that has been created for us by our very patient and forward-looking government statisticians, namely sources of growth within our national accounts. When we have that information and we can deploy it the way that I've tried to do to today, then we see that the driving forces of demography and technology stand out. There's a great deal of uncertainty associated with the trends in technology, obviously. But the trends in demographies uh, are baked in, so to speak. There's not much we can do to change them. And we are going to have major changes in demography. That's the main point. And those changes have already begun to take place. That's something we're going to hear more about in this panel. So finally, we have the uh, fact that changes in technology are likely to replicate the past, not the glorious years of the great uh, boom, but uh, the uh, overall periods that's around 1990. Changes in demography are quite different from the historical record, but we can uh, forecast those with uh, considerable uh, um, uh, reliability. So our conclusion is that we know a great deal about the future, and it's not terribly bright. You might say, suppose you are now a careful reader of all of the brilliant suggestions about increasing the prospects for US economic growth. These have been arrayed for you by the 50 experts that Brink Lindsay referred to uh, and uh, contain every uh, idea that uh, people have had about how to improve the prospects for our economic growth. There's nothing, I repeat, nothing we can do, really, about our demographic prospects. However, there is something that is very important. And that is that there is an underlying trend which has been captured by the CBO, for example, in looking at the growth of uh, potential versus actual output, which is that our economy is running a little bit below capacity. Actual output is running well behind uh, potential output. A gap between the two is opened up that the CBO estimates to be around 3.5% per year. If that were to disappear over the next five years or so, through wise economic policy, then it's quite possible that the growth for that period could be as much as half a percent higher. But the following half decade is going to be pretty much along the lines that I have uh, suggested for you. So what we're here to debate, it seems to me, is really how are we going to continue a regime of economic policy that is gradually closing the gap and will ultimately succeed? That's the uh, question which I think is before us. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, thanks. Uh, so I'm going to actually let me start, start here. Uh, I will. The usual disclaimer uh, applies to what I have to say. The, nothing I say is necessarily the views of anyone else affiliated with the Federal Reserve. Uh, uh, and what I mainly want to talk about is the, the rise and fall of exceptional productivity growth linked to information technology and the implications of that. And the main point of that, which I've already uh, highlighted in the, in the title, 
and which Brink uh, alluded to in his presentation, is that productivity slowed down prior to the Great Recession, uh, not primarily because of the Great Recession. Uh, so to motivate, one way to motivate uh, what we're, you know, the, what I'm going to talk about, in fact, to motivate what, uh, some of the, things, the purpose of this conference, uh, is hope versus reality. So Dale alluded to some of this in terms of GDP. So the uh, dashed line shows what the Congressional Budget Office thought prior to the Great Recession about what the path of uh, GDP ought to be, uh, growing at two and a half to two and three quarters percent per year. Well, the actual line has fallen far short of that. Uh, at this point, at this point uh, about, we're about 10 percent short uh, of, of where the CBO thought we would be in 2014. Now, the CBO has, has revised its views about what potential GDP is, sort of what the sustainable or full employment level of GDP is, and uh, there are a lot, you can, we can uh, you know, debate lots of aspects of this and talk about lots of aspects of this, uh, but the one that we, I want to focus on uh, and the focus of this panel is what's the economy's long-run growth rate? That is once, as Dale talked about, once we get past all of the kind of the whatever cyclical uh, effects are left, what's the trend of that growth rate in the, in the longer term? Well, to uh, preview my points, uh, productivity growth uh, slowed prior to the Great Recession, and it appears to reflect an end, or at least a pause, in the IT revolution. Uh, and we'll uh, come back to that. I'm sure we'll be talking about that point uh, much more over the rest of today. Uh, so I would, I would characterize this as there's lots of innovation going on, but uh, it leads to fairly mo what, what we think of as modest productivity growth in the, say, 1.5%, maybe 2% range. Uh, and, maybe that, and that seems to be my, that's my best guess of, what normal, of the new normal. Uh, so there's lots of innovation, but it's just not as transformative as what we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s. But I think it's also, it's pretty important to highlight uh, how uncertain that is. Uh, there's either the people who look at, try to look statistically, uh, you get a, a, an extraordinarily wide range, a wide confidence interval on any uh, projection if you do, you know, anything, sen and you sort of do sensible statistics on it. Uh, I'll highlight a few of the sources of uncertainty that, drawing on uh, a paper I wrote earlier this year with Chad Jones, looking at sort of the global nature of R&D, uh, as R&D becomes more, more global, um, and ideas spill across borders. So, you know, China, India, South Korea, and other countries are now doing research that is relevant for frontier economies like the U.S. in a way that wasn't possible uh, or that wasn't happening a couple of decades ago. Uh, and then I'll, uh, briefly about machine learning and robots, uh, which are a wild card in any projection and which I think we have an entire session on uh, coming up. So to start then, my main, in some sense my main point is that productivity slowed down prior to the Great Recession. So what this bar chart shows is for various sub, you know, subsamples, so you know, we have the, the pre-1970, the, pre the quarter century before 1973, then the slower 1973 to 95 period, and then, and then uh, some other, other periods. In orange shows, so that what this shows is the bar sum to output growth, uh, on average output growth over uh, the different sub-periods. Uh, hours growth uh, is in uh, orange, uh, and labor productivity growth uh, is in uh, uh, blue. So prior to 73, we had fast output growth, with especially driven by very rapid labor productivity growth. Uh, after 73, uh, productivity growth, the blue bars, and then you know, moving to the second bar, you know, fell off dramatically. Uh, 
But output growth fell off somewhat more slowly because, you know, for, because hours work were growing very rapidly. Uh, and that was the demographics uh, that Dale uh, talked about with the baby boom generation entering the labor market. Well, in the, in the mid-90s, mid uh, productivity, labor productivity uh, surged. Uh, hours growth, you know, total hour, you know, this is, you know, hour, hours growth, which, uh, you know, uh, slowed from its sort of 70s and 80s pace because the, we didn't have the same uh, baby boom uh, influx. Uh, uh, and, but output growth was then very rapid because of the productivity boom. Now, I've divided the past decade into two periods, uh, the four years leading up to the Great Recession and then the almost seven years since. Uh, and so what you see is almost the same productivity growth in those two periods. So this is the four years prior to the Great Recession, the seven years since, productivity growth, labor productivity growth is almost identical. What differs is hours growth, where the, you know, out the, the labor market was doing very strong. It was quite strong in the 2004, five, you know, 2004 to 2007 period. Uh, but at hours worked in the business sector are actually lower now than they were in 2007. Uh, so that orange bar is negative. Uh, but the productivity piece, which we'll now be talking, which we'll be spending, labor productivity piece, which we'll spend the rest of the time talking about, was extraordinarily similar. Now, uh, and since I think the background of people here you know, uh, may differ, you know, differs in terms of, uh, 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 I want to talk a little bit, just make sure that we're on the same page in terms of definitions. Uh, so I'll now kind of turn to growth accounting, so what the, the pieces that Dale talked about, uh, and uh, just, to make so just to make sure that you know, we're all uh, understanding terms the same way, uh, as uh, Brink talked about, labor productivity can rise because you know, worker skills uh, or because of capital, you know, because workers have more intangible or tangible capital to work with, or because of what's left over, what, we, what, what isn't explained by skills and capital, which we'll call technology. That is what, that's what Dale over, uh, talked about as defined as productivity. And Dale was very careful. Productivity meant what I, in this slide, I'm talking about technology uh, or even innovation. Uh, labor productivity would be output per hour, uh, which reflects all the other factors as well. But, but this me measure of technology is a broad one. It's any, it's our, basically, it's anything that affects our ability to convert resources, labor and capital, into output, so the goods and services that we value. Now, you know, ultimately, technology, which Dale called total factor productivity, I'll refer to that as total factor productivity sometimes, uh, reflects innovations. Uh, you know, so some of those are large, some may be small, uh, but it includes not only what we think of as typically as, techno you know, as technology, you know, smartphones and software and uh, uh, cloud computing, uh, but, uh, uh, but anything else. So you know, historically, you know, printing press was extraordinarily important at allow, allowing us to codify and, and disseminate information. Double book, entry bookkeeping was an innovation that allowed firms to better manage uh, uh, themselves. Uh, uh, steam engine, electricity, internal combustion engine all allowed us to sort of harness and you know, to produce and harness in, uh, power better uh, and so forth. Even, even since this is a broad measure, you know, better you know, laws and re you know, a, a, a reliable rule of law is important. Uh, uh, for fostering innovation, and you know, regulation. Some regulations will you know sort of help you know help promote good good activity by businesses. Some may may keep and you know prevent innovations that ought to be taking place. But all of that's going to be captured in this broad measure. So what I'll now do then is go back to that productivity piece to see well where in terms of that labor product you know where did labor productivity come from, 
and why did it slow down in the past decade? Uh, and the answer is that it was really innovation, that sort of total factor productivity piece uh, or technology piece that has been much slower over the past, that really accounts for the, what's been going on in the past decade. So blue is, well, I'll start at the top. The, the top part is labor, what Dale called labor quality. It's the contribution of, la of, of education and, and experience of the labor market uh, uh, to growth. Uh, the red bars is the effect of giving workers more capital to work with, uh, you know, physical or intellectual capital. Uh, and the blue bars is everything else. So I've labeled that as innovation. So clearly the, the productivity, so in the bars now sum to labor productivity growth in the different subsamples. So, you know, so we had this rapid innovation pre-73, much slower in the 70s and 80s and in the early 90s. Then we got the, the, this rise of exceptional growth. Uh, uh, but in the past decade, even the four years prior to the Great Recession, uh, TFP growth, or innovation, was contributing uh, much less, uh, and similarly to what we've seen in the past seven years. Uh, so, uh, so really, it's that innovation piece is what's been explaining it. Now, we know why, why we have a, lots of people who looked at why productivity accelerated in the, in the 90s. Uh, uh, many, of them, many of that work, many, you know, largely for work, largely from work done by people uh, in this room uh, that have linked that acceleration uh, to the production and use of information technology. And uh, what, uh, you know, so there's, there's no shortage of that, whether you look at firm data or, you know, industry data or aggregate data. Uh, that acceleration reflected uh, the, con the, the production and use of information technology. Uh, so then the question is what, uh, well, but before, I'll, I'll refer to, return to that point later on. But briefly, where did those bars, let me just show a little bit more detail. Where did those bars come from? You know, where did the, why did I choose the dates I chose in that previous bar chart? Well, this shows labor, it shows one piece, the innovation piece, or total factor productivity. So the level of this series uh, since 1973. And you see in here the, the speed up in the 70s, so statistically, or the 90s, a, a, a statistical test will detect a break in trend uh, in the mid-90s. But then you also see the much slower pace of, of, of growth in TFP uh, you know, since uh, prior to the Great Recession. In fact, so the, bar, the shaded bars are, at, with, are recessions as denoted by the NBER. So the, the slowdown in TFP started before, well before the, uh, uh, the Great Recession, the far right gray bar. Uh, in fact, in the two years prior to the Great Recession, you know, TFP was declining, which is a little unusual in a boom. You expect that in a recession, and you see in the recession, there's a lot of, you know, the TF, this measure of innovation, which would not control for capacity, you know, declines in capacity fell. Then we got into the recovery, capacity recovered. Since that point in the past you know, three, four years, we've been back on a, on a slower trend growth rate, growth line. So, uh, where am I going? Uh, so what I now want to do is understand more, a little more where did that slowdown come from. I'll, I'll now turn to industry data, which so Dale used. I'll use different industry data, a data set than he did uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, which, so I'll focus on this innovation piece. And I'll, but the, the data I'm going to use exists only for a shorter period uh, than, than what Dale had. Uh, 
Uh, I started, I used it because initially because it went a little bit a little bit farther than Dale's. Dale's now extended his, or the BAA has extended theirs. Uh, but so I will be focused on the period that's, uh, well, basically from 87, the data run to 2011. I'll focus on the period that ends in 2007. Uh, so we get the pickup in the mid-90s and then the slowdown after 2003 in labor, in, in, in innovation. So this is the period of that bar chart that I'll be focused on. And so, what I, so now the bars correspond to different periods. Uh, so now this is the 87 to 95 period, then the 95 to 2000 period, 2000 to 2004, 2004 to 2007, and then the period since the onset of the Great Recession. And the bars here sum to, uh, uh, you know, the, the sum to total average growth and total factor productivity growth according in the BLS industry data uh, for these different subperiods. And I've, I've cut the data somewhat similarly to what Dale did, uh, but, a li but, but not exactly the same way. Because one thing I worried about is, you know, in the mid-2000s, in the early to mid-2000s, there were a lot of weird, strange things going on in the U.S. economy that even look stranger with, with retrospect in terms of, you know, the housing boom and the construction boom, uh, strange things going on in finance, uh, uh, surging commodity prices. All of those things could have played a role. Well, that's why the industry data are useful, because we can break those out. Those are the things I've called the bubble sectors here at the bottom. So construction, real estate, finance, mining, agriculture. So those were in the, in the early year, you know, 2000 to 2004 period, were actually contributing negatively. They contributed more negatively in 2004 to 2007, but that's not an important part of the story, because the, the other bars, the ones that lie above the, you know, up, above the, the zero axis, uh, so when you throw, which is what you get if you throw out those uh, sectors, that, that had an even sharper slowdown uh, outside of those unusual sectors. So it was not a, just a matter of something to do with a housing boom and bust or uh, uh, something to do with sort of strange things going on with finance. Now, uh, uh, the next cut of the data is the one, one, is one that, that, that Dale highlighted as well, which is IT producing industries. Uh, well, that, you know, over this sub-period, you see the surge in, in the contribution uh, during the uh, late 90s. That it receded, it receded somewhat, it remained important, but it receded going into the two, after 2000 and, and, uh, and even a little lower after 2004 in terms of its contribution. But that, that's a story that actually started, was a slowdown after the late 90s, uh, even more than in the 2000s. Uh, the next cut, well, that is IT-intensive in using industry. So I've now cut this sort of somewhat like Dale did. And the, the IT-intensive and not IT-intensive uh, have the same weight in GDP, uh, but, they are, but, they are, but they contribute very differently uh, uh, to uh, innovation in the economy. So here what jumps out is this surge or sort of this bulge in the contribution of IT-intensive industries. So, you know, so you know, wholesale, wholesale trade and, and some utilities and some, you know, some services that use IT intensively uh, uh, in the 2000 to 2004 period. I note, by the, as a reminder, this does not include, you know, finance is IT intensive, but I've thrown out, but finance is already in that bubble sector. So this is, these are mutually exclusive categories. So that's sort of one strange thing that is not an IT intensive uh, sector. I think it probably was in your IT intensive. Um, but... After 2004, that really just fell off. Uh, uh, 
Uh, so really, the slowdown after 2003 or 2004 in TFP was all coming from you know, IT-related industries, either those you're producing or uh, in especially intensively using IT. Uh, so that that so that point, you know, no, I will say that you know, we'll we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, but that's actually intuitive in lots of ways because uh, uh, you know a lot of the the you know if you reorganize re, you know, wholesale and retail trade to take advantage of better ability to use uh, in, you know manage information. Well, once you've reorganized uh, the you know, the the supply chain, once all the low productivity. Uh, uh, you know, mom and pops have been driven out of business, or other firms that can't keep up have either gone, caught, you know, figured out or or uh, uh, how to do it, or gone bankrupt. Then maybe the gains become more incremental. So that I think that so it's I think it's actually intuitive that maybe the low hanging fruit uh, was was plucked of some of the use of of information technology. So now let me turn to some of the bro growth prospects. So. This is the bar chart I, I had on, on labor productivity. Uh, I'll do a forecast. I, so I did a forecast for this, uh, which I won't go through the details of how I got it. I used a multi-sector, a three-sector you know, neoclassical growth model, uh, used some statistical techniques that are designed to, 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 to forecast in the presence of structural change, uh, all of which gets complicated. But it's not worth going through the details, because what you basically get is uh, something that the steady state of that model is the future looks like the past. Uh, uh, so maybe, you know, and the recent past, more like the last decade than like, and, or the 70s and 80s, uh, than uh, like, uh, you know, productivity growth of one and a half or two percent. But that's actually not the most interesting part of this, because there are enormous uncertainty about this. So, uh, you know, Mark Watson at, at Princeton talks about, uh, uh, you know, with its work with uh, Ulrich Muller, talks about confidence intervals on these projections, of which uh, a reasonable confidence interval uh, you know, an eight, so there's a two out of three chance that productivity growth would be within, say, three quarters of a percent of this. So something like, you know, so if I have one and three quarters of my estimate, maybe between one and two and a half percent over any t over a ten year period. That's enormously wide. Uh, that so what are some so more interesting is what are some of the factors that will matter? So I'll highlight three. First is one that Dale highlighted, which is educational attainment is plateauing. So this shows educate you years of schooling based on the year of birth of uh, of, a, of 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 an individual, and that uh, has so basically after you know sort of we've got this massive rise after 1880 to the mid 20th century, much flatter rise, and the last few years of the data it's plateaued, and so that's sort of the fact that that's something we know about and will show up in the labor quality numbers that Dale talked about. But another interesting aspect is just that. You know, ideas flow across borders. We benefit from innovation. You know, the rest of the world benefits from innovation done in the U.S., and we benefit from innovation done elsewhere. Surely it matters where it's done, but, uh, but, but much more broadly, it matters uh, that, it's, that the innovation is done. And, you know, places like China did no innovation that was relevant for us two decades ago. Now they are. Uh, in 1978, there were essentially no science PhDs in China. Now they're, they're producing more of them than the U.S. is. Uh, you know, South Korea really jumps out here in terms of doing research and development, uh, where they've, they've just taken off. So this is R&D relative to GDP. Um, and then, uh, of course, a big wild card is how does IT measure up uh, to past innovations? That we'll talk about in the, in the, in the, in the next. 
the bar, I will just note here, the bar on this is high because there were multiple transformative innovations going on you know, since, since the late 19th century that were uh, being sort of put in and implemented in the uh, you know, first three quarters of the 20th century, whether it's you know, uh, you know, electric, you know, electricity and, and, and uh, 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 internal combustion engine and the, internal, the interstate highway system, lots of, lots of uh, innovations in, in, in drugs and chemicals and, uh, and the like. So from that point of view, arguably the resolution of Solow's paradox is that information technology is why we're doing as well as we are today. That is rather, rather than, so it's not a puzzle that productivity is so, so slow, it's rather IT is why we're doing so well. The wild card in this is, is uh, what will machine learning and what robots do? Because if machines can learn for us, that generates much more ability to generate new ideas uh, uh, going forward than maybe we've had. So it's entirely possible that even if the low-hanging fruit of IT has been plucked, uh, there will be another harvest uh, coming. So to conclude, my best guess of the new normal is productivity growth in the one and a half to two percent range. Uh, now, this is a, a trend that started before the Great Recession, and it was linked to uh, sort of the end of the exceptional and transformative phase of the IT revolution. Uh, but there are big upside and downside risks around any projection, and so uh, at, 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 you know there are it is it uh, so and a lot of those are going to be those risks are going to develop outside of the scope of anything that policy has to say, but certainly to the extent policies can help with the creation and diffusion of ideas, uh, that, uh, that's going to help both foster growth and it try hopefully ensure that the benefits of growth are uh, widespread. Thanks. Thank you very much. Third speaker is Martin Daly. Could uh, the tech person, oh, they already have. Bring it up. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you to Brink uh, and Cato for organizing this uh, conference. One of my liberal colleagues said, you're going to Cato? I never set foot in that place. And I say, oh, no, it's a, it's a good place. Um, so uh, uh, let me uh, just point out what my role is here that Brink uh, suggested that I do, was to comment on the papers by uh, uh, Dale and, and John Fernald. Uh, now, that's been a little bit of a difficult task because they've, I've, I've got older versions of these papers and, and they've changed what they've done a little bit, so I'm going to skip over some of the comments that I make on there. But I'm <clears throat> very sincere in saying that uh, both authors, Dale is clearly uh, the world's leading uh, analyst of productivity and he's done a fantastic amount of work. He credits the BEA, which is appropriate, but he's been... Uh, really driving a lot of that process. So I think that's uh, just a tremendous achievement. And, and uh, I agree with many of the things he, he says, as I do with, uh, with John also. Um, but uh, even if I disagree, he's really providing the framework that we can all use. Similarly for John, who's, who's now sort of the next generation of productivity uh, uh, leaders. Okay, with that aside, um, so I'm going to limit a little bit what I say about um, uh, these. I think you've, you've seen this, and, and some of the numbers have changed a little bit appropriately as new, new data has come forward. I'll draw one thing out of what uh, uh, I saw in, in John's paper, the, the one that I was um, looking at from, from, from earlier this year, and, and that is that, that uh, in his discussion, he says, maybe measurement error is not such a big deal, um, I didn't take that away, that impression. If you looked at well-measured industries versus poorly-measured industries, 
you see that the, the poorly measured industries really didn't have any measured productivity growth over the entire period that he's looking at. And so that's, uh, that's a sign to me that maybe there's some uh, measurement questions that are, that are important. So I agree very much that uh, I think most of us, I mean, the, in a sense, the reason for this, uh, for this conference is that uh, productivity growth has slowed down. We're in now a slow growth uh, trend. If you extrapolate that forward, uh, that's got implications for GDP growth, for improvements in living standards, for what happens to our budget and all kinds of uh, good stuff. Uh, one question I had about both papers is that I, I would have liked a clearer definition of what's IT intensive and non-IT intensive. And I, I say that partly because there was a big study by Van Ark and various co-authors. And uh, it depends where you put a lot of these industries. He put retail and IT intensive. John put it in non-IT intensive. And, and I did wonder why, in a sense, we make this either-or characterization, whether it mightn't be better to have IT capital as a factor of production and talk about the contribution of IT capital in all of the industries rather than uh, sort of dividing in these two. And another <clears throat> sort of comment or criticism was, uh, and, and I say this, um, this is very hard to do, but I do think at least as you think about the US economy, you have to put it more in a global context. And in particular, uh, manufacturing has been historically one of the big, big contributors to productivity growth. Um, since 1987, Barry Bosworth and I found that if you exclude IT production, manufacturing productivity has not contributed much uh, overall. And uh, so that's an interesting question, why that is. Uh, and also, if you think about IT production, and, and uh, Bob Gordon has pointed this out also, uh, much of that is moving overseas. So how is that going to affect our measured productivity growth? or in turn our, our welfare? Does it matter if those things are made overseas or if they're made in the US, even if it affects how we measure productivity growth? Um, <clears throat> so this is, is um, expands on these points a little bit. The one point I'd pull off this slide is that while I fully agree that IT is very important, uh, IT production certainly in the, in the 90s and the use of IT, IT is everywhere, no question about that. Um, but I, I do think it's a mistake to just sort of, you know, if you remember the old debates about monetarism, you know, uh, money doesn't matter, money matters, only money matters. And I think I would say uh, certainly IT matters, but it, it's not only IT that matters. Uh, and in particular, you have to uh, apply these uh, innovations. You have to figure out a way to change your business process or your, the product you produce or the service. And, and as I say here in the third bullet point, uh, you have to make sure the personnel you have in place are able to implement these changes. Do they have the right skills for it? Are they motivated to do it? And is the overall strategy of the company or organization may not be, uh, may not be right? So I, I think it's worth just sort of stepping back and saying, yes, Moore's Law was tremendously important. I agree with Dale and, and John on that, but uh, there are, you, you know, there are now, I think, a lot of opportunities to apply IT, which are there even if we had no further increase in semiconductor speed. Uh, there are ways of, of taking advantage of the technology that's already there that people are going to be thinking of over time. So the potential for, for innovation is there. Uh, the other thing I'd say about the industry data is the number of the industries show negative TFP growth. And that's a bit of a red flag, as, uh, as you think, if you think that's maybe 
uh, unlikely or surprising, that may be a bit of a red flag about some of the, the industry data. I think there was a study done at the, at the, the Fed here in Washington that's, uh, some years ago that said, well, if you took off all these negatives, if you lopped them all off, then the average rate of productivity growth would be much faster. That, I think, was not an appropriate uh, exercise. Um, you know, there, there are big epsilons on all of these numbers, and you can't just pick the ones where the epsilon is, is positive. But nevertheless, I think there's some question about how good the measurement is in construction, which was a bubble industry, for example. So when we had a huge wave of construction, that actually dragged productivity uh, down. Uh, we've seen measurement of negative productivity growth in construction for years and years, which is, which is hard to believe. Um, okay, I also cite here some innovations which, while they may uh, be linked to IT, are really um, important innovations that were not primarily driven by uh, Moore's law, the Toyota production system, lean production, the expansion of big box retailing and scale economies that I think are still important, for example, consolidation in the, in the banking sector. Okay, now I'm going to turn to, I think, the, the speculation part of my, uh, of my speech, which is what's going on? Why are we seeing these uh, trends? So productivity growth was very rapid until the early 70s, and uh, there were a lot of studies that Dale and I and Ernie Burns and lots of people contributed to as to why did productivity slow down. I think the favorite uh, explanation of the time was energy prices. Well, if, if uh, now that energy prices have fallen, maybe we'll be able to dust off all those old models if it turns out the productivity speeds up again. Uh, but by and large, uh, I don't think that explanation held up uh, very well as an explanation of productivity growth because energy prices fell in 1986 and we didn't see a resurgence of, of uh, productivity. And then the other thing is, is to understand that uh, many other economies slowed down, so it's, it's worth thinking about okay, what, what is the common factor or what was going on? Uh, there was more catch-up catch growth overseas, and so maybe they hit the frontier and then our frontier slowed down and we went with them. But it, it's, uh, it's still something of a puzzle why, why we slowed down. I think I agree with Dale, who makes the statement that there were just a lot of productivity opportunities after World War II, we'd had the Depression, we'd had the war. A lot of innovation went on during that period, but we were able to take advantage of that and uh, diffuse and expand uh, to scale some of those innovations, and that's what happened. Why its sh uh, productivity slowed rather abruptly after 73, I still don't know. It may have been tied to energy, uh, but that's still something of an unknown. We have a hard time explaining these shifts in, in productivity. I agree very much that the surge of, uh, of productivity in, in the mid-90s was tied to uh, production of IT. Um, I think the, the reasons for the continuation after 2000 are a little bit less clear. We didn't see that continuation. We didn't see either the surge uh, in Europe or Japan, uh, which maybe is because they weren't producing as much uh, IT. Um, I am not pressing my button, so I'm sitting here. Um, yes, I am uh, pressing my button. What am I saying? Um, getting, getting senile up here. Um, so um, so, the, so I, I feel a little bit less confident in, in understanding what happened between 2000 and 2005 or what's happened from 2000 to the, 
to the present. I'm going to throw in a couple of charts. This is one from the, the CEA, and it just shows uh, what I said earlier about the fact that m most other economies, all other economies, all other advanced economies, uh, went through this uh, slowdown. And actually, the United States, these are 15-year centered moving averages, so they don't show the, the necessarily the latest numbers. Uh, but they do show you that the U.S., in some sense, slow and steady. Uh, is, is So at this point, by the end of this period, the United States actually has the fastest productivity growth. So I don't know if misery loves company. We're, we, uh, uh, we're not the only one that's had uh, weak productivity growth. Uh, but it also suggests that uh, maybe there are some common uh, causes here. Okay, so I do think that maybe the <clears throat> excuse me stronger productivity growth after 2000 was linked to um, very weak employment. Uh, th there was really a massive uh, drop in employment, particularly in um, manufacturing after 2000. So that whereas we had in the 1990s and in, in prior to 73, we had strong productivity growth uh, as well as strong employment growth. After 2000, we really haven't, haven't had that. We've either had the, the employment growth or the productivity growth. But, but the, the strongest periods of, of productivity growth, the strongest years of productivity growth, have often been, almost always been, years of weak uh, employment growth, at least in, in uh, non-farm business. So I'm not the first to notice this. Carol Corrado, before the Great Recession, pointed this out with some co-authors, uh, suggesting there was a lot of restructuring. That, that matches what I hear from um, my friends at, at McKinsey, where I work, uh, that, that a lot of what happened after 2000 was that uh, companies just got rid of lines of business that they had, you know, had been exploring in the go-go years of the 90s, and then they just said, no, that's not working. We're going get, to get rid of that stuff. So maybe that was IT-enabled in a way, but it was also um, you know, just a, a reorganization of what they do. And I think certainly following the Great Recession, there was another bout of that strong uh, restructuring. This chart didn't work quite as well as I hoped it would, but um, it does show here that the strong productivity growth was associated with the period 2001 to 2013, uh, oftentimes or very often with um, negative changes in hours, which is not, is not the same pattern that existed uh, prior, certainly prior to um, the 1990s. Next explanation for slow growth is that, you know, we don't have any more innovation. And I think uh, Bob Gordon, Tyler Cohen have been associated with that, although Bob, I'm not sure where he quite stands on that one. Um, I'm very skeptical of that. I think many of the people in this room are skeptical of that. I think uh, Eric Brynjolfsson will talk about some of the changes that have been, been taking place. So I think there's a lot of innovation going on. And the puzzle really is why it's not translating into broad productivity gains. Um, it, it, another reason why I think there's a puzzle here is that the rate of profit has risen in the United States. So it's not that, for example, um, if you look at a solo growth model or something like that, uh, you know, if, if innovation is slow, then that will have a depressing effect on the rate of profit and ultimately of investment. But actually, the profit rate is very high. We're, we're not getting that much investment. 
Um, so there's a kind of puzzle around that, why business is doing very well. Some of it obviously is because they're doing well overseas, but even domestically-based profits are, are pretty strong. And they are associated with, particularly with the technology industries, that's where a lot of the, the profit growth has taken place. Uh, again, consistent with technology being a driver of, um, of uh, those profits. Um, this is just one example that you all know um, that there has been a huge innovation in the energy industry. Um, it, I don't know that it's necessarily changed what's happened to productivity because we are still sort of exhausting the resource, um, but uh, a huge innovation here. This one's absolutely tied to information technology. It's also tied to uh, drillers, uh, wildcat drillers that figured out how to drill sideways and put uh, liquids in the ground to get the oil and the gas uh, out, but a huge innovation. So just an example of a major innovation in our economy. Next explanation, how long do I have? Five more minutes. My next explanation is measurement. And uh, Bob Gordon and I uh, wrote about that uh, back in 1988, uh, a paper sort of why trying to understand why computers are everywhere but not in the productivity statistics. And I think we found, uh, as, as many others uh, did, that the measurement of real output growth in many industries was poorly measured or not measured at all. Now, there have been a lot of efforts to improve the quality of the data. I think probably innovation has moved our economy in, forward in ways that uh, have really increased that measurement uh, problem. So, you know, search and social media, it affects uh, millions of people. I don't know if I could uh, uh, live or work, I should say, without access to, uh, to Google. Uh, social media, I'm not so big on, but um, things like uh, Uber are sort of transforming uh, innovations, not obviously that big, but certainly important. Uh, the convenience factor that you get from a lot of this stuff really is not, uh, is not there. And I think just looking at um, healthcare, and uh, that's just a big sector of the economy, 17% of GDP or whatever we spend on, on healthcare, and I don't think we're measuring uh, output and productivity, real output and productivity in that sector, and so we're missing a, a lot. I think healthcare does have a long way to go to be more productive in the way it's organized, and, and uh, there are a lot of restrictions and so on there, but uh, there's a lot of innovation taking place in that, in that industry which is not being captured. Okay, next possible explanation is regulation. Um, this is not, I'm not putting in this in just because I'm at the Cato Institution. I think this probably does have something to do with slow productivity growth. I don't think it's all Obama's fault, um, but uh, we have become much more concerned about environmental issues and safety issues, and uh, that is having some effect. There's also arguments about the uncertainty around energy prices, although with now that energy prices have come down, maybe that's um, maybe that seems less of a problem now. I am concerned about financial regulation uh, as having become a little too restrictive. The pendulum may have swung too much uh, the other way from where it was before the, before the crisis. And so uh, a concern about lack of uh, funding for small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, corporate taxes. I mean, that's a funny one because corporations in the U.S. don't pay much tax. On the other hand, marginal tax rates are high. So I do think we need to uh, reform taxes and get rid of the extraterritorial feature of our taxes to encourage more investment in the U.S., which would help us on the, 
on the productivity side and as a transmitter of, of technology. And then my <coughs> last explanation is a dual labor market, and I'm still uh, working on this and playing with this. I sort of think there has to be some tie between slow observed labor, average labor productivity growth and the fact that so many uh, people are now in uh, low-wage jobs or that, that uh, wages below the median, compensation below the median is, uh, is so weak. And, and it's obviously tied to skill bias, or not obviously, it's tied to skill bias, technical change, and to some extent to um, globalization. Okay. And uh, so the, there's been a de-skilling of occupations. I think it's had an effect on workers. I think there's a certain discouragement. People, you know, you either join the rat race or you don't. And I think a lot of people have, have opted out of the rat race, so they may not be taking advantages, taking advantage of educational opportunities that are available to them. And so, uh, and U.S. businesses are very good at figuring out how to be, uh, to make money in a, in a business model in which they have a lot of low-wage labor. Um, these are just uh, signs. This doesn't, doesn't prove the point here, but uh, I think one of the reasons we have such um, low labor force participation is because uh, the available jobs aren't very good and people move in and out of the labor force. If they've got a spouse that works, they don't work. If they can go on disability, they go on disability, um, or they'll uh, <clears throat> uh, find some other way to uh, uh, to do it. And a lot of people uh, now living with their parents. I just like this chart. I mean, it does sort of illustrate some of the problems people are facing in the labor market, unless they all uh, love their parents more than they used to. But I, <laughs> I suspect it's the labor market that's at, uh, that's work here. So, so what do companies do? I mean, as I said, companies are efficient. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, McDonald's or a, a bank, or which now uses a lot of relatively low wage labor. So it's not just uh, not just hamburger flippers. It's jobs and number of sectors where they have restructured uh, their labor demand. So what do they do? Well, obviously they conduct a war for talent. I mean, that's that's definitely going on. Um, you talk to any of the companies that hire skilled people, whether it's financial companies, accounting companies, lawyers, and so on, they're definitely in a war for talent for the, for the top of the, of the distribution. So what do they do with the bottom? Then they let their stores stay open all night. They have people bagging groceries. You have extra staff. I go into my CVS, and there's a guy about 70 years old, and his job is to stand there and say, hi, welcome to CVS. Um, you know, that's not a high productivity uh, occupation. Uh, and we get a proliferation. There was a story in the New York Times about uh, wages in Denmark and wages in the U.S. And they said, well, cost of a hamburger is not that much higher in, in Denmark. But the point I think they missed is that there are almost no McDonald's in Denmark where there is a gazillion here. So it's a different, um, it's a different business model that's available to you if you have that low-wage labor. So the, the idea really is that we're sort of running the W. Arthur Lewis model in reverse. We're increasing the number of people in the sort of low-wage sector, not necessarily the traditional. It's not, uh, uh, yep, time's up. Uh, but uh, we're creating this sort of dual economy. Obviously, that's more complicated than, than that. Uh, but a lot of low-wage jobs as well as a lot of high-wage jobs. And when you average that out, we tend to get uh, slow productivity growth. So uh, since I've run out of time, I, I will have to skip the, the stunning uh, last couple of charts uh, and uh, leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you very much.
So we will have question and answers uh, in a second. Uh, I can't help but point out, however, that Martin's colleague, who never sets foot in Cato, was clearly objecting to the fact that we're far too left-leaning. After all, <laughs> if you look at the affiliations of the panelists, we see Harvard, MIT, Northwestern, the Federal Reserve Bank, Columbia, Harvard, UC Berkeley. True, we have one person whose affiliation is the American Enterprise Institute, but that person worked for the Federal Reserve Board for a large fraction of his career. So I hope you will uh, reconsider uh, and come visit us sometime. Yes, I, I've been before. <laughs> Um, in the Q&A, um, I will be calling on you. Please wait till someone comes to you with a microphone. Please state your name and affiliation. Uh, and please remember that a question ends with a question mark. Okay. <laughs> Eric? First, thanks to the panelists. That was an uh, amazing uh, uh, present set of presentations. And, and I agree with almost everything that, that I heard up there. It's very uh, impressive. Um, there was a, a question I have, I guess, for, for John Fernald, just a really little one. At one point, you showed a chart with TFP falling for a number of years in, in the mid-2000s. And, you know, we don't usually think of, of knowledge as being destroyed if that's a, uh, a measure of our, uh, uh, our innovation and technology. Do you, do you have some thoughts on that? And, and, and I know that Martin said we shouldn't eliminate the, the uh, negative epsilons, but what are your <laughs> thoughts about what was going on um, to make it not just slowing, but actually negative? Um. So I'll break that into two things. I mean, because I think you're pointing. I mean, it was actually falling after the end of 2006 and 7. TFP growth was negative, leading into the Great Recession. Uh, I think that's what your question is about. Of course, then during the Great Recession, it's easy to come up with stories because uh, you know, because you know, TFP all measured measured TFP always falls in recessions as uh, because of capacity. So it's but the the 2006 and 7 is a puzzle because of the fact that it's. Uh, 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 because the economy was booming. So that's a time when you, you usually, you know, capacity utilization was, and was, was anything rising in that period. And uh, I think, it, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, I mean, the, one, of the, one of the striking things with those data is just how volatile uh, the series are from, from uh, over any period of time. Uh, of course, it's true even, you know, you might think it's just some, you know, some strange measurement quirks, but it's true even, of course, if you look at, people look at, uh, you know, look at look at plants or even you know, plants that you've looked at, where you see enormous volatility from year, you know, from one period to the next. Uh, why it was widespread, I don't know. I guess why that's why I've tended to to average through that. Um, uh, I will note that the you know the generally weak productivity after about 2004 was noted a little bit in real time. Uh, the data revisions to GDP, you know, to the national accounts have made it, you know, including I think in something, you know, something Dale I remember writing writing about that in 2007 or eight. Um, uh, uh, but the data have been revised to be even worse. Uh, so I think that 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 has heightened the you know the data revisions since 2004, five, six, seven have made have heightened the puzzle that you're highlighting. Other questions, uh, gentlemen up front here. Uh, Mr. Bailey, I'm, I'm uh, curious about one of the uh, points you made toward the end of your presentation uh, that um, uh, one of the reasons that productivity growth may be, uh, may be slow is that businesses are hiring a very large number of low-skilled workers. Um, given the context that you've all described, 
why are businesses hiring a lot of low-skilled workers? In other words, given the context, why is CVS hiring greeters? Um, well, I think simple answer is they're cheap. Um, and uh, so you, you look for ways. So certainly if you compare the way a, a, a grocery store or a pharmacy operates in France or Denmark with how it operates in the United States, you see a lot fewer people uh, where they have the high... Um, minimum wages. So I assume that CVS thinks that having a greeter um, is something that customers like, and and you know he can direct you to what aisle you want to want to go to. So uh, because he's he's uh, you know that's what you'd expect in a way when when uh, labor is relatively cheap, you look for those marginal things that you think are profitable, um, and uh, having people to bag groceries, having people keeping a store open all night. Uh, these are these are going to be uh, low productivity parts of the uh, of the thing, but it, they're still profitable because labor is relatively cheap. Brad, right David Beckworth from Western Kentucky says that I'm since I'm up at the front, I should ask his question um, <laughs> or a question that he's been musing about the past two days um, for both John and Martin. It's not just well and poorly measured industries; it's durable goods versus others. It's the production of things that make investment um, goods as opposed to things that make consumer commodities. Um, Though second in all of those is the one where productivity growth has fallen off the cliff, and it fell off the cliff in 1973. Before 1973, productivity in investment and consumption producing, in well-measured and poorly measured, in durable and non-durable goods, was very consonant. Um, if this is measurement error, why does the measurement error emerge only after 1973 in such a striking way? If this is not measurement error, what could possibly be causing the failure of the invisible hand to notice this second group of industries starting in 1973? Dale or John? Wanna... Well, I, I, I just mentioned there is, I think, some uh, literature that, that shows that the slowdown after 73, after 73 was more concentrated in service industries. And uh, now there are service industries that are easy to measure, like electricity generation, and there are service industries that are hard to measure. And something like telecom, which used to be relatively easy, uh, call minutes or something like that have become much harder because of all the things that, that you get. Um, so uh, it, it, it did, I, you know, it didn't, clearly measurement error didn't suddenly happen in 1973. So I agree with you, that's probably not the only or necessarily the main reason for, for what happened. But, but if you look at, at the nature of innovation and what technology is doing and how much of it is being measured uh, today, then I think at least there's a suspicion that that may be part of this, uh, this story, that we're not picking up. Uh, the service benefits, the convenience benefits that we're getting from a lot of this stuff. It, some, a lot of it's counted as intermediate goods, and you don't, you don't measure it at all. There's a question back there. A woman with hand up. Hi, thank you. My question has to do with education policy, because this is obviously a crucial element here. Um, you showed a chart. You said that educational level hadn't really increased aggregately in the last 40 years. We've talked about the dearth of highly skilled workers. It seems to me that the, the mass media discussion about education mostly has to do with 
the, mm. the debt that kids come out with, and then on the on the lower uh, the primary levels, teacher tenure and the problems with t teachers and the unions. Um, because education is such a crucial factor in all of this in, in the economy, is there not some push, uh, a serious push to look at the German model? I personally think that that college should be free, that we should that we should model uh, our educational system on the German model, where we take kids who are slated for for academic. Uh, tracks and then um, you know uh, the the the, uh, the uh, what do you call it uh, trades uh, and I and I think that if we we need to educate the the, the populace for what the the jobs that are in demand are so with uh, more subsidies for education or particular types of education. So is there any serious push? I mean, I know we'd get we'd get screaming from universities, but let's see. That's the question I have. Anyone want to take? <clears throat> yeah, I'll be yeah. glad to. Uh, uh, I'm glad that you're changing the subject. I mean, uh, we've been talking now uh, predominantly about changes in technology. But uh, really, demography is uh, what is driving the slowdown that John uh, has identified as taking place before the Great Recession. So uh, a very important part of that is the slowdown in what I call the growth of labor quality. But I guess uh, we need to focus on the fact this is not a failure of the educational system. Quite the contrary. Uh, it's uh, simply the fact that uh, our labor force is finally caught up with the potential of our uh, exceptional um, educational system, and we now have a labor force that is uh, practically uniform in terms of its uh, educational attainment. If we thought about that as a potential source of solutions for our problem of uh, slowing economic growth, we're up against the fact that changes in educational policy uh, would take uh, decades to uh, have an effect on the labor force. People have to work their way all the, through, all the way through the uh, educational system and so on. If we're going to uh, change in the direction, uh, not of Germany, but of uh, other countries, uh, Finland would be an example, uh, Japan would be another, uh, where educational attainment is actually higher on average than it is in the United States, uh, then we would uh, require decades to implement a change like that. So that's not a change uh, that could have a big influence in the short run for sure, uh, even in the intermediate run that I tried to focus on over the next uh, decade or so. Uh, whether we ought to undertake some kind of a major change in educational policy, uh, I think is uh, something worth debating. But uh, it's not something that is part of the solution of our slowdown in economic growth. That's uh, already uh, baked in. Uh, and education is a success story in this country, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think both Martin and yeah, John I, wanted to comment on that as I, well, and then we'll wrap it. I think there are very successful parts of our education system. I think other parts are less successful. Germany is an interesting example. In many ways, you say they, they do well. They have free college education, and they, they have the apprenticeship programs, which has, allow people to get general skills while at the same time going into a job. Um, and, and so I've got a lot of admiration for that system. I think a lot of good about it. But there's some questions about that system, too. Uh, a lot of the college students who, are, who in some cases, get paid to be in college will stay in college for years and years and not do that much. So there's a bit of a problem, I think, in the German college system. Uh, my son-in-law is a, uh, a German, so he talks to me about the, that uh, on a first-hand basis. 
And then the, the apprenticeship programs uh, too, while they are great, Germany has not, I mean, Germany's doing well right now. It's, it did not do well in earlier periods. So it's had a mixed history on that. And um, it's, it, it, there's not a lot of productivity happening there. So they've been done well on employment. They're doing well on competitiveness relative to the rest of Europe. Uh, you don't see huge productivity gains in, in Germany. John, you get the last word. <laughs> okay, uh, just uh, uh, a little bit, a little bit more on what, on what Dale said. He said one of the, the despite this uh, plateauing labor quality or, or uh, educational attainment, uh, labor quality contribute contribution to labor to productivity has actually been very strong in the past seven years. Uh, uh, and the resolution of that paradox is low skilled workers are the ones who have dropped out uh, disproportionately. So if Dale's uh, projections for labor quality are substantially wrong over the next. Uh, decade of labor quality growth is much faster. Uh, that may be because we keep having low-skilled workers dropping out. So that would be a bad. That would be a good for the productivity numbers, but bad for uh, presumably bad for the economy. Uh, uh, so, but that is that certainly one aspect of trying. You know, education can matter both for our ability to you know innovate at the top, but also for people to benefit broadly uh, from whatever innovation is going on. So thank you very much to the panelists. I'm afraid we're out of time for this session. We have a 15-minute break, not quite 15. There's water available outside. There are restrooms most easily accessible down the stairs. Uh, thank you very much to the panelists, and uh, see you in a few minutes. <laughs>